0: If you want to be the best at what you do, if you want to be the most successful at what you do, you have to out-hustle the other people, you have to out-work the other people, you have to out-prepare the other people. And if you're not willing to do that, then you need to quit listening to this right now and turn on some music, put your car on cruise, and slide on home. Because winners do things losers don't want to do. If you were in a competition, if you were in a game, say a big football game, and you were getting ready to play it on Saturday, would you call the other team up on the Monday before and say, Hey, I just wanted to give you our playbook so you weren't surprised this Saturday when we show up? Of course you wouldn't. You would have a playbook that you would keep close to your vest and not let anybody know what's in there except for you. Well, the same thing is true in life, and that's what we're talking about. The playbook for your life. We started last week. We're continuing this week. And when we started, I talked about number one, you must have a defined image and never go out of character. I'm a strong believer in a defined product. You've got to decide who you are What image you want to project, what horse you want to ride in this life, and once you decide what it is, it's got to be authentic, and you've got to stay in character. You never go out of character. Second, I talked about the fact that that character, who you choose to be, must be unique because you must create a perception of uniqueness you're like everybody else. If you're a face in the crowd, then you just become interchangeable, right? I mean, I can take you, take somebody else. You're all alike. What difference does it make? You have to not just be unique. You have to create a perception of uniqueness. And third, I said, you must play big, not just long. A lot of people think, boy, oh boy, when I get a chance to talk, when I get a chance to be in front of my work group or my friends or whatever, I've got to talk for a long, long time. I am a strong opponent of that. You need to play big, not long. When you finally speak, say something that matters. Don't get lost in a sea of minutiae. So that's in Living by Design number five. I go into a lot of detail because I don't want this to just be a philosophy. I want this to be the way you go about living your life. If you go through the things I'm talking about last week, this week, next week, and somebody that knows you can't look at you and say, wow, something's different here. This person has shifted gears. They've raised their game. Then I didn't do my job, or you didn't pay attention, one or the other. So I want to really give you something that you can do. So if you've got questions after hearing Living by Design 5 or after hearing today, Living by Design 6, then I want you to let me know. Go on to the website for fill in the blanks and put your questions down. If something needs more clarification, You disagree with something, whatever, tell me and I will visit that next week. I want to know. Let's move on to number four. There are 16 of these, by the way. I'm giving you a thorough playbook here. And when I say playbook, by the way, what I've done is I have made a study. A study since I was 12 years old, actually. Of why people that win win. Why people who are winners are winners. Because let's face it, all men are created equal. Yeah, that's true. That's meant in the sense of our worth and value as human beings. But not everybody performs at an equal level. We know that. Look in the NBA look in track and field, look in the laboratory, wherever you look. Some men and women perform at a higher level than other people. So I've always been interested in why some people are winners, some people are just mediocre, and some people are just flat-out losers. And there are a lot of reasons that people wind up on the short end of the stick, but there are some very specific reasons that people are winners. And think about this. I thought about it the other day because I had a high school reunion. At our high school, the big parking lot where everybody left their cars was at the end of the gym. It was stuck on the end of the school. And that was where we had all of our assemblies. That's where we had all of our pep rallies. That's where everything that took place took place. And that's where we had our graduation. There was a big stage at one end. And when it was all over, there were like four sets of double doors at one end of that gym. And I had this vision in my mind, this image of what happened. Because when it was all over and everybody graduated that was going to graduate, we all came pouring out those double doors into the parking lot. So we had all been there. For several years together, we all came pouring out those four sets of double doors into the world and into life. And then here, we came back together decades later. And it was really interesting to see where people had wound up after all that time. It was just really intriguing. Some people... Were home run hitters, man. And it wasn't necessarily who you thought was going to be. Some people were just barely getting by. A lot of people weren't even alive, but those that were were all up and down the bell curve meaning that the vast majority were just kind of living average lives in average America, doing average jobs for average income, average marriages, average number of divorces, average number of kids, 2.2 kids, a barking dog, a picket fence. And then there was this group that were overachievers. They were the ones that were out there running the world. But we all came out those doors with the same Opportunities in terms of educational background. We all had the same information, but we didn't have the same environment that we were going into. Some had better opportunities than others. Some had a road paved in front of them. Some it was an uphill battle. But we certainly wound up in different places. And I have spent my life studying why those that wound up winners after all those years wound up ahead and those that wound up to be losers came in at the end of the pack. Ask yourself that about you. Maybe you've been out of high school three or four years. Maybe you've been out 30 years. Maybe you've been out 20, whatever. Where are you in your pack? Are you doing pretty well? Are you kind of bringing up the rear? Are you... Average Joe or Joan right in the big middle. And do you want to know how to be one of those that's leading the pack? And that's why I'm spending this time on this fill in the blanks podcast. I'm wanting to fill in the blanks about why winners win and losers lose. Because if I gave you a pen and a pad I'm guessing you couldn't fill in all those blanks because you probably haven't spent the last 40 years studying it, and I have. I probably couldn't fill in the blanks in what makes your job your job, but I can fill it in what makes my job my job, and this is what it is. I told you at the beginning of this that you weren't going to have to be a narcissist, and you weren't going to have to cheat But I also said this wasn't for the squeamish, because frankly, those that wind up being winners, those that get ahead in this world, they just do some things losers don't want to do. And it's easier not to do some of the things I'm going to tell you to do. And you may think, oh, you know, that doesn't seem like the Christian thing to do. That doesn't seem like the polite thing to do. Well, you'll have to make up your own mind about that. But this is a playbook that requires your being aggressive. Because if you want to win, you're going to have to be aggressive. The meek shall inherit the earth. But as the old joke goes, who will step up to claim it? The meek may inherit it, but none among them will step up to claim it. I want you to step up and claim it. And that's number four learn to claim and accept praise and acknowledge it in a gracious way, but do accept it. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, Essential Television. Now, think about that. Every strategy you embrace, every action plan you execute should be designed to distinguish you in a positive way, right? I mean, you want to get noticed. You want to get ahead. I said you want to come up with an image that distinguishes you through your uniqueness, and you want to play big. That means you want to make waves. You want to make noise. You want people to notice you. And when they do, you're going to get praised. Maybe it's in your career, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in your social circles, romantic relationships, whatever it is, but people are going to step up and praise you. Why is it that most people have a problem accepting compliments? Why is it that when somebody gets praised, somebody gets acknowledged? Somebody gets the just rewards of everything they've worked to achieve. The typical response is, Oh, shucks, weren't nothing, and dig their toe in the carpet like, Oh, you know, no, don't mention it, don't mention it. What the hell you mean, don't mention it? I've been working six months to get noticed here. Yes, do mention it. Mention it to everybody you know. Tell everybody you know what I did. You don't want to be one of those people that shies away from what you have earned. If you have earned the right to be praised, if you have earned the right to be acknowledged, then you need to graciously accept that. And for some reason, we have been taught humility. We shouldn't be embracing praise and acknowledgement. and. I told you this isn't for the squeamish, because I'm telling you, you absolutely should. Humility is great in certain times, in certain circumstances, but when you are on the move in your life, in your career, in whatever it is you're pursuing, and you are upwardly mobile, why wouldn't you graciously... Accept the compliment or the invitation to move to the next level. I can only think of two reasons. One, you've been taught it's prideful and narcissistic to seek attention, so you shun it when it comes. Or two, you really don't believe you deserve it. You just really don't think that you've earned it. You don't believe you've deserved it. Well, let me remove that first obstacle right now. It is not prideful. It's not egotistical to accept, claim, or expect praise. I say expect because you teach people how to treat you. When you do a job well, then you need to teach people that you expect to be acknowledged for it. And if you don't do a job well, then you should expect people to say, hey, that was not up to par. You need to step up your game. You don't want to be lied to. If you want to succeed in this world, you need honest feedback, right? You need people to tell you the truth, or you're going to continue this trend toward mediocrity or worse. You need to choose to respond differently when someone praises you or confirms your value. In fact, you should work out your response in advance and you should practice it. You should practice it so you don't choke or revert to your old outdated response pattern when it happens. So how about simply learning and practicing to say somebody praises you, they come up and say, hey, I just got to tell you, you did a really good job on this project. You may think it's gracious to say, oh, no, listen, it was nothing. How about instead saying, thank you for saying that. You are really kind to notice. Is that prideful? Is that egotistical? Is that narcissistic? Is that obnoxious? Is it obnoxious for you to say, thank you for saying that. You're very kind to notice. Or, That means so much coming from you, so thank you for noticing, and thank you for taking the time to say so. Does that seem obnoxious? Is somebody going to turn around and walk away and say, what an arrogant SOB, because you said that means so much coming from you, which is a compliment to them, and thank you for noticing and taking the time to say it because you didn't have to do that. Instead of saying, no, 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 no. If you're in a personal or romantic situation, you can reciprocate at the level of comment that you received. It is always safe to begin with a straightforward, thank you for your kind words, and then add any specific reaction that you want to. Now, the second obstacle if you don't believe that you deserve the credit or praise, then let me assure you, others will soon begin to agree with you. Because anybody that's truly evaluating a person's worth, value, skills, and abilities, in their heart of hearts, they're going to say, who am I to second-guess them? They've known themselves since the day they were born. And they seem to know that they're not very smart, They're not very good. They're kind of lazy. They don't really have ownership in the good outcome here. So who am I to second-guess them? They're going to defer to you eventually. They may not say it to your face, but I can promise you they're eventually going to say it to themselves. If you lack self-confidence, if you lack self-worth, like I said, you teach people how to treat you pretty soon they're going to agree with you. Now, the fact that I said you need to practice this may sound silly or corny or condescending, but role-playing is a very powerful tool in anybody's life. Like I always tell parents, if they're teaching their children how to behave if a stranger comes up to them, Just telling them is one thing, having them role play it, having them rehearse it is something very, very different because now they're not likely to choke because they're doing it for the first time under pressure. If you're telling them to kick and scream and say, this is not my mommy, this is not my daddy, help, help, 911, not my mother, not my father, 911. If they've done that 10 times with you out in the front yard, it's much more natural for them to do it when it really happens. The same thing is true with you. You absolutely need to look in the mirror and say, thank you for saying that. You are kind to notice. It is worth it to you to say that means so much coming from you. So thank you for taking the time to say so. Just those things. You've claimed it. So now they've complimented you. You've embraced it. So you've been noticed and you've acknowledged it. That is very important. You have got to overcome this myth that it is egotistical or narcissistic to accept praise. And you may say, well, I hear you, Doc. but. Where's the line? I mean, does that make you a self-promoter? Yeah, probably so. But if you, if even you won't promote yourself, why would anybody else? I do Dr. Phil every day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. People ask me, is this worth watching? What do you think I say? Oh, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I, it's just something I do. I don't know. You think that's what I say? Absolutely not. I say, I absolutely believe it's worth watching. We really work to destigmatize mental illness in America. We give people common sense information delivered to their homes every day for free. And I think, in fact, that it is the highest and best use of television. Is that self-promoting? I hope so, because I intend to promote what I do because I believe in what I do. And if somebody sees me on the street and they come up and say, Dr. Phil, I just love your show. I love your message. I say, well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that because we have a lot of fun doing it and we really believe in what we do. And it means a lot. That you take time out of your day to watch what we do. I don't say, oh, don't be silly. It's just, you know, it's nothing. I say, thank you. Thank you for saying that because we take it real seriously. It's great to hear from you that you take time out of your day to watch. That means a lot. Why would you not do the same thing in your own life? And I'm asking you to do that because that's one of the things winners do. Number five, you must become essential. You must become essential. Now, this goes with being unique. Unique is that you stand out from the crowd. Okay. That means that there's something about you that distinguishes you from everyone else and you want to be noticed, right? But what I'm talking about now is in whatever situation you're in, you want to be perceived as essential. I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I have had the same personal assistant slash secretary, whatever you want to call it, for 40-plus years now. Her name is Barbara. And let me tell you how essential she is. She knows everything about my life. I don't know anything about certain aspects of my life. If I need a passcode to get into the nest, thermostat at my house, I call Barbara. She knows what it is. If I need the passcodes to the streaming services on my phone, I don't know what they are, but Barbara knows. If the printer or the copier gets jammed at the office, maybe a lot of places call the company and say, this isn't working. All I've got to do is say, Barbara, She comes in and she knows exactly what to do. She can unpack it, deconstruct it, put it back together in the time somebody else would take to call a repairman. She knows where every contract is, where every file is, how to fix every office machine. She knows what every phone number goes to. She knows who to put through, who not to put through. She is essential. It's like you would feel if you lost your phone. If Barbara took a week and just went totally off the radar, I guess they'd just have to put me in a medically induced coma. She knows everything. She is essential. And if somebody said, well, you're going to have to cut back here, Uh, you're going to have to get rid of some employees, she would be last on the list because she is essential in so many different areas. She is a jack of all trade and a master of most. She is essential, as opposed to somebody that maybe is a specialist, somebody they do this job or they do that job. She has made herself essential. I'm asking you in your job, in your relationship, in your family, at your church, do people perceive you as being an essential member? of your sociogram, an essential member of your work group, an essential member of whatever it is that you're involved in. And if you want to be a winner, if you want to be an important member of a team, you need to create the perception of being essential. And I say perception because it's not just enough to be essential. You have to make sure that people perceive you as being essential. That's what I mean about accepting praise. If somebody comes and says, wow, sure glad you're here because you know how to do, well, everything. You don't want to say, well, no, I mean, everybody kind of knows how to do all this stuff. Are, Are you kidding me? Say, well, thank you for noticing. I've been here a long time, and I've made it my job to learn, I guess, every job here. So thank you for noticing. You want to confirm, yes, I am essential. Damn right. You don't have to be obnoxious about it. Now, all you armchair psychologists are probably sitting around, so, Dr. Phil, what you're telling us now is that you want us to foster some kind of codependency and invite some kind of unhealthy reliance from others. No. First off, codependency is a clinical term, and I suspect if I gave you a blank piece of paper and a pen and had you write down a fulsome definition of it that you probably would miss 8 out of 10 of the components of it, but it's not unhealthy. Common sense tells you that if they don't miss you when you're gone, chances are pretty good you're going to be just that, gone. I don't want you to just hope this doesn't happen to you. I want you to find actions you can take towards becoming essential, irreplaceable in whatever scenario you're in. While we're talking about common sense, you want to guard and protect what you know. Do not give away the recipe to the secret sauce. Remember, there is no reality, only perception. So to maintain this perception, you want to guard your unique knowledge. If you know how to do five things that only you know how to do, you really don't want to go teach three other people how to do those five things. Now, you may think, well, Now, come on, Dr. Phil, I'm a team player. I want everybody to be able to do everything I can do. Well, okay. Then go knock yourself out. But if you want to be essential, if you want to be a player, if you want to be a winner, you are going to maintain some unique skills, some unique abilities, some unique knowledge that nobody knows but you. And when that's true, they're going to miss you if you're gone. And they're going to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, I'm asking you to think about that. Does that make sense? Don't give away everything that makes you essential, everything that makes you unique. So, bottom line, what I'm telling you here is the secret to success is to know things no one else knows and guard those things you know that no one else knows. I mean, just be smart about it. When you get into the game of life, this is chess, not checkers. And if you think that other people aren't playing this game with strategic objectives in mind, then you're going to miss the level at which life is happening don't be one of those that doesn't get it this is chess not checkers let's talk about number 6 and i really want you to think hard about this one as we talk about it because this is going to require you to do some real thinking number 6 in your playbook is you must know your real currency your real currency now, I just really don't like psychobabble. I don't like words that have been so overused that they lose their meaning. It really bugs me when I hear people talking about, I want to empower people. I want, You know, come on, empower has been used so much that it's lost its meaning. What do you even mean when you say that? Think about number six. You must know your real currency. The only buzzword in that sentence might be currency. So let me explain what I mean by currency, because I don't want it to be a buzzword. By currency, I mean that which you value. What do you really value? The most obvious form of currency is monetary, money. That's currency. Currency is money. But there are other forms of currency, right? Like getting praise. We just talked about accepting praise. A lot of people value getting praise and acknowledgement. They used to say about General Patton in the war, you give him a couple of headlines, he's good for another hundred miles. They used to say that about General George Patton. Give him a few headlines, he's good for another hundred miles. He'll press on whatever the odds are. He liked that. It was of value to him. Some people love social currency. They love friends. They love to feel like they have a sense of belongingness to a group. We all feel better if we think we're part of something, we belong to something, that we're accepted by others. They say that validates us, which is another overused buzzword, which just means we're okay. That people that we care about accept us, which tells us we must be okay because these people that we admire or look up to want to hang out with us, so we must be okay. That's what validate means. It just means if they like me, I must be okay. They're spiritual currency. If you have spent time in prayer and meditation and reading the Bible or the Quran or whatever it is that is your connection, and you feel a sense of peace about that, and you feel a closer walk with your higher power, which I choose to call God, then you have spiritual currency. You feel like you have a connection. So there are lots of different forms of currency. Sometimes when I go home at the end of the day, I feel like we worked with some people today that I made some real headway with, and they were teaching tools. And so based on what we covered, I'm guessing that millions of people got a message today that was very important. So I'll go home and I'll be really tired, but it's what I call a good tired. I feel like I used my life, I used my platform today in a really positive, impactful way. That's currency for me. If I feel like I was a good steward of my platform and used it in a meaningful way, then that's currency for me. I feel good about that. I don't go home thinking, well, I made money today because I did this or that. It's a good tired. I feel like I've made a difference today. So that's a currency for me. And you need to ask yourself, what is your currency? And what is your real currency? Not what somebody else says should be your currency, because the worst thing in the world you can do is waste time. The key is to not waste time or effort, even on a short-term goal, if that goal cannot yield what you really want and need. It's just simply inefficient. I've known people that have pursued a specific career. They've gone to school, gotten a degree, worked in that field, gotten to the top of their field, and been terribly unfulfilled, because it was never what they wanted to do to begin with. It wasn't the currency that they wanted. Maybe they went to school and became an architect, and they got really good at being an architect. They got to the top of their field with some architectural firm. They got awards for it. But they never felt satisfied because they never valued being an architect. They wanted to be a musician. So they would work all week as an architect and then go play on the weekends as a musician and get more gratification, more satisfaction out of a day and a half as a musician than they got out of five, five and a half days a week as an architect. And you say, well, Dr. Phil, come on, get real. You got to pay the bills. Maybe that architect's salary paid for their home and their family and their kids. We can't all go chasing after the great American novel or playing guitar with Jimmy Buffett somewhere or whatever. Look, I get that. I get that there has to be a balance, but you have to make the list. You have to be willing to put yourself at least somewhere on the list. You have to at least acknowledge. My real currency is this, and make sure it doesn't get crowded off the list. I worked with a woman one time in a life skills seminar that had spent her entire life up to the age of 45 working as an attorney, and she was good at it. She was a good attorney, but her passion. What she really wanted to do was dance on Broadway. That was her dream as a little girl. It was her dream in junior high, high school, college. She wanted to dance on Broadway. I said, Why did you not? She said, Well, life got in the way. My dad was an attorney, my grandfather was an attorney, my mother was a paralegal. Our family were lawyers. That's just what we did. I was expected to be a lawyer. When I got through with school, I was expected to go join my father's law firm, and I just did what I was expected to do. And everything I do, I try to do well, so I was good at doing it. And now, I'm 45 years old. Have you ever seen a 45-year-old dancer on Broadway? And I said, Well, I don't know. I've never checked their IDs, but probably you're right. I don't know. It seems to be probably a young person's thing. And she said, Well, so I guess I'm screwed. I said, Well, maybe not. We worked on that and said, Okay, what is it you love about this concept of dancing on Broadway? So, well, I just I, I just love the creative parts of it, the expressive parts of it, the choreography, the the costumes, the, just everything about it. The, the, it comes to the show. It's what I wanted all my life. I said, well, have you ever thought about teaching dance in your community theater? Well, no. Well, let's think about that. Jump ahead in the story two years. Being a very skilled dancer, she volunteered in the community arts program. She became the head choreographer, and the first thing that she worked on was the nutcracker for the Christmas program. And when I saw her two years later, and she had 20 or 25 young girls that she was working into this wonderful program that they were putting on, you couldn't even get her feet on the ground. She was so fulfilled by finding a way to get that real currency. Most of these girls were from underprivileged homes, and her career as an attorney allowed her to buy every one of them the shoes they needed to dance, the tights they needed to dance, the leotards they needed to dance. She found a way to take what she had spent her life doing that she wasn't passionate about and use it to fuel what she was passionate about. And I asked her, I know this is a substitute. I know this isn't dancing on Broadway. But does it come close? She said, the first time I sat on the side of the stage and watched those 22 little girls run out onto that stage and do what they did, it was my opening night. So she found a way To get her currency, to get her dream, even at 45 years of age. How about you? Do you know what your real currency is? And are you passionately pursuing it or are you telling yourself, it's too late? I wanted to be in the NBA, but I'm 45 and I'm 5'10 and I have bad knees. Well, do you have a love of basketball? because I guarantee you there's a shortage of coaches. I guarantee you there are so many kids that need someone to help them. The number one thing that determines the outcome of a young, underprivileged child's life is whether or not they have an adult that puts their arm around their shoulders and says hey, Let me help you out here. I'm going to show you some things you need to do. Maybe you're 5'10 with a bad knee and you're 45 and you're never going to slam dunk on LeBron. But I'll tell you what, you may feel like you did when some kid that had nowhere to go, nowhere to play, and no one to hone his skills makes his first basket. But you can't know that if you don't know what your real currency is. And you've got to find that out. In order to do that, let me tell you something. You have to decide that you will not take no for an answer. And don't decide that there is only one way to skin a cat because that's not true. Don't tell yourself no Don't let somebody else tell you no, and don't decide there is only one way to get the currency you want. Don't decide that you've blown it, that it's too late, because it is never too late. Too many people are told no and turn around and walk away, and I'm going to give you a little secret that I have embraced my entire adult life, that has made a substantial difference in my life. And that is, when I want something and it involves someone else, I never, ever, ever talk to anyone who cannot say yes. Now, let me say that again. I never ever talk to anyone who cannot say yes. Let me give you an example. Let's say I need to change a flight on an airline and I call up the airline and somebody answers. Now, I'm asking them to do something that is outside the normal pattern. Do you think the person answering that phone has the authority to do that? Chances are pretty good they don't. So the first thing I do is say, all right, here's what I want to do. I want to take this flight, and I want to change it to this flight. And I'm not asking you to do it. What I'm asking you is, do you have the authority to do it? not asking you to do it. I'm not even going to tell you my story. I'm just asking you, do you have the authority to do it? More often than not, they'll say, no, sir, I do not. So they say, what's the the deal? I said, does it matter? You don't have the authority to do it, do you? No, I don't. Listen, no disrespect, may I speak to your supervisor? They get the supervisor on the phone. I say, okay, listen, here's what I need to do. I can tell you why and all that, but first I need to ask you, do you have the authority— you have to put a code in the computer to do this. Do you have that code? Do you have the authority to do this? No, sir, I don't. I'm sorry. I, I wish I could, but I don't. I understand. No problem. May I speak to your supervisor? Well, I I don't think they're going to help you anymore, but yes. I said, well, you can't help me, right? I could inspire you to the point that you would stand up on your desk. You don't have the code, right? Wes, well, correct. May I speak to you, supervisor? I get the supervisor on the phone. I say, okay, here's what I need to do. I'm not asking you if you'll do it. I'm just asking you, do you have the authority to do it? Well, yeah, I've got the authority to do it. I'm, I'm not telling you I'm going to do it, but I got the authority to do it. I say, great, have a seat. <laughs> We're going to talk. Okay, why do I do that? Because I don't want the person that answers the phone or the person that answers the phone's supervisor to go plead my case to the third person. Why? Because I believe I can plead my case much better than the person who answered the phone or the person that answered the phone's supervisor can plead my case. Because it's like playing the game of telephone. You say it to one person and they say part of it to the next person who says part of it to the next person. I think I'm a pretty good persuasive person. I'd rather plead my own case. I do not waste my time talking to somebody who cannot say yes. And if they say, well, I'm sorry, I, I can't get you a supervisor. I hang up and call back till I find somebody that can. I have seldom, when I have gotten someone that can say yes, failed to get them to say yes. But I marvel at people who talk to someone that cannot say yes. No matter how good the story, no matter what the circumstance, it doesn't matter if there's crying on the other end of the phone. Oh my God, what a horrible story. I feel so bad for you. I wish I could fix this for you, but I can't. Don't have the code. You got to put a code. I don't have the code. I, don't, I can't. I don't even have a button to push. Why have I spent 30 minutes entertaining this person? They can't help me. Don't ever talk to somebody who can't say yes. Make that part of your life code. You do not talk to somebody who cannot say yes. All you're doing is flapping your gums. And I'm saying the same thing here about finding your currency. If you want to do something that you need to do to start harvesting your real currency, do not talk to somebody that cannot help you do that. You've got to get to a decision-maker. You've got to get someone that has the ability to say yes. I mean, I'm in Hollywood now. I do Dr. Phil. I do Bull. I do the doctors. I do Daily Mail TV. I do other shows. We go to pitch a show to a network. My people know, do not put me in a room with somebody that can't say yes. If there's not a decision-maker in the room, they know, do not put me in that room. Because I don't want to go pitch Somebody that can't say yes, who's going to then go pitch their boss who can say yes. I don't need a middleman. I want to talk to the person that can say yes. And if they don't say yes, okay, it didn't work out. But it needs to not work out because I didn't do what I could do to get it to happen. So you have to decide what is your real currency, whether it's mental, emotional, social, safety and security, monetary, spiritual. Whatever it is. Second, realize that there's more than one way to skin a cat. You might have thought the only way I could get it would be dancing on Broadway. That's not true. What you wanted was the feeling you would get from dancing on Broadway. Do not assume that dancing on Broadway is the only way to get that feeling. And then once you go to pursue it, do not waste one second of your life talking to somebody who cannot say yes. Okay, I don't want to throw too much at you at one time because I really want you to absorb this. So I've just covered four, five, and six out of a list of 16. And I know I've put some other stuff in that's kind of overarching. We're going to continue this next week. I'm talking about a playbook for your life. These are things that I don't want you to just kind of think about. These are things that I want you to incorporate into the character of who you are, the values that you use in approaching life. I want these to be, just as I say, your playbook. This is the way you play the game of life. And you may think, well, You know, Dr. Phil, life's not a game. Yes, it is. Not all games are frivolous. Not all games are for fun. But it is a game. And it is a serious game. Now, number one was you must have a defined image and never go out of character. Number two, you must create a perception of uniqueness. Number three, you have to play big, not just long. That means seize your opportunities and have an impact. Number four was learn to claim and accept praise and acknowledge it in a gracious way, but do accept it. You worked hard to get noticed. You need to be noticed to get ahead. So why would you shy away from it once you finally earned it? Number five, become essential. Make sure that you will be missed if you were gone. You would be missed if you were gone. Number six, you must know your real currency. That is so very important that you know your real currency because I would hate for you to spend your life chasing after something you don't really want that would be the worst possible outcome. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, and the next thing you know, your life has just flown by with you chasing something you never really wanted. When I said I want you to fold these things into your life, I really want you to look in the different areas of your life, And ask how you can apply these first six things we talked about your social life, your family life, your romantic life, your professional or career life, your spiritual life. How can you use these six things to have an impact in those areas of your life? There's an old saying life is hard. Life is a bust. All you do is what you must. You're in control. I'm just giving you some tools to exercise that control. Because life doesn't have to be a bust, and it's never, ever too late. I'm Dr. Phil. We'll talk again.